1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're filling in for June Grasso, who's out this week. Ahead in the hour, we'll talk about the fight at the Supreme Court over a $6 billion bankruptcy settlement that could release the billionaire owners of Purdue Pharma from all liability related to the opioid overdose deaths.
3: But first, we'll talk about the late Justice Sondra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the US Supreme Court.
1: So today, I'm pleased to announce that upon completion of all the necessary checks by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I will send to the Senate the nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona Court of Appeals for confirmation as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her.
3: That was President Ronald Reagan, who nominated O'Connor in July 1981. The justice died last week at the age of 93. Joining us to talk about her trailblazing time on the bench is New York University Law Professor Melissa Murray, who co-hosts a podcast on the Supreme Court called Strict Scrutiny. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Melissa, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about how Justice O'Connor got on the high court bench. Just wondering, what was the moment like when she was nominated to to the court as the first female justice?
4: Well, obviously, this is a campaign promise that Ronald Reagan made in sort of the wake of the women's rights movement. But when he had to actually go about finding a Republican woman to nominate, he didn't have a lot of choices on the federal bench. Republicans didn't really have a great track record of putting women on the bench. And in fact, most of the women who had been on the federal bench at that point had been appointed by Jimmy Carter, and that included Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, while there were a number of choices on the federal bench, they weren't necessarily ideologically aligned with Reagan and his electorate. So he had to look a little further afield. Um, he cast his gaze across the state courts and he settled on Arizona, where Sandra Day O'Connor had been a politician. She had been the majority leader of the Arizona Senate. And from there, she'd gone on to be a trial judge in the Arizona state system and then a judge on the Intermediate Court of Appeals in Arizona. And she'd been very active in Republican politics in the state, Um, worked very closely with the Goldwater campaign, um, a real mover and shaker in Republican circles in Arizona. And she really rose to the top.
2: Now, despite being appointed by a Republican, uh, Justice O'Connor became really a decisive vote on a number of big issues. We're talking abortion, uh, affirmative action. Um, so I'm wondering, can you tell us about a few of those notable decisions?
4: Sure. Um, you know, even straight away when she joined the court, um, she definitely had some decisions that really have become canonical, the things that you know we teach now in constitutional law. One of them um, was a decision in the 1980s called Mississippi University for Women versus Hogan, which was a challenge brought by a man, Joe Hogan. who sought admission to a nursing program at the University of Mississippi for Women, and he was denied admission because the program was exclusively for women. So this is a sort of predecessor to the VMI case that was later decided by the court in 1996. In that case, the University of Mississippi said this program is exclusively for women because we are trying to remedy the historic exclusion that women have faced in the employment market. And just as our honor kind of did the smell test on this and was like, you know, women really haven't had a lot of barriers to being nurses. This actually seems like a program that's rooted in a stereotype that the only kind of medical profession for which women are well suited is nursing. And so, on that ground. She said this was not really a program where a gender classification could be upheld. Um, this was something more insidious, more of a stereotype, and she invalidated it, and she got a majority of the court to do so. She would later go on to broker some really important compromises on landmark issues like abortion, for example. Um, as a justice of the court, uh, she evinced a real skepticism of abortion, um, not necessarily in whether or not a right existed, but whether or not the right existed and could coexist with the state's interest in regulating the procedure itself. And recall, she had been a legislature at the state level and so she very much believed in the prerogatives of states over certain things like health and welfare and so she really brought this to her judging on the issue of abortion and she was the one who articulated in a series of separate opinions in cases like webster and thornburg this idea of an undue burden and then in 1992 when the court took up planned parenthood versus casey this challenge to roe versus wade she really had an opportunity to put that into practice. It seemed to everyone that the court was poised to strike down Roe versus Wade, but she, along with Justices Kennedy and Souter, formed a troika that really compromised on this question, reading the public mood, recognizing the interest in sorry Decisis. They brokered a compromise that would give states the opportunity to broadly regulate abortion while still upholding the idea that there was a constitutionally protected right of a woman to choose an abortion. And that was one of her most significant decisions. And you see some real glimmers of her interest in women's rights in that opinion. One of the provisions of the broader abortion law that was invalidated in that decision was a spousal notification provision mm-hmm. that she said really endangered the lives of women in abusive relationships and made clear that women who were in marriages were not necessarily equal to their husbands in terms of decision-making authority. And so she did not like the idea that women would be subservient to husbands or would depend on husbands for making such a decision like this. And so she invalidated it. And then again, really emphasized the threat to women who were in abusive or violent relationships.
3: You started off talking, Melissa, about barriers for women that may or may not exist in the in the um, nursing space. Um, even once Justice O'Connor got on the bench, there must have been some barriers to being the first woman on the court. Can you talk a little bit about what that must have been like for her, day in and day out?
4: She mentioned this a few times when she talked about her tenure on the court. Like it was hard to be the first. I think she very much felt the weight of her historic appointment, um, and she said, you know, very frankly. It was great to be the first, but she didn't want to be the last. She didn't believe that her gender necessarily said um, or influenced the way that she judged. She said, you know, a wise old man and a wise old woman would reach the same conclusions. But, you know, it was really clear that in some of these cases, particularly in cases involving women's rights and gender rights, she very much came down in favor of women's rights and had perhaps a more keen eye for the kinds of injustices that women had experienced and she experienced some of them herself very famously you know she graduated near the top of the class at stanford law school and could not find a job in the legal field as a lawyer she was told to get a job as a legal secretary was offered jobs as legal Mm -hmm. as as a legal secretary so i think she understood that very well and she also spoke about how much of a relief it was and a joy when Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the court in 1993, when she was no longer the only woman on the court. And you know, they were two very different jurists, um, in some cases diametrically opposed in terms of their jurisprudence. But on the question of women's rights, they were often in alignment and voted together 90 percent of the time in women's rights cases.
2: Hmm. So, you know, Justice O'Connor was known for being the first female justice on the court, but she was also known for being the last justice uh, to have any prior elected political experience, you know, before she was confirmed to the court. Can you tell us more about that? I know you mentioned it before about, um, you know, her time in, in Arizona, but can you uh, walk us through what her background was there?
4: Well, I think. To today's listener, the idea of a judge who was also a politician seems a little far field because we just don't have that profile on the court anymore. I think the person who comes closest to it is someone like Justice Kagan, who had to be relatively political as the dean of Harvard Law School, but certainly was not an elected official in that way. Um, but you know, for a very long time, this was not an unusual profile for a justice to have. Earl Warren very famously came from California politics. Hugo Black had been a senator from Alabama. And Justice O'Connor, of course, spent a lot of time in the Arizona state legislature. And it did inform her judging. She very much believed in this question of federalism. She was one of the stalwart um, people on the court on the sort of new federalism that really sought to make a clear divide between the prerogatives of the states and that which was then reserved for the federal government, and making sure there was a clean line and that states maintained their regulatory prerogatives, um, she also, I think, applied those kinds of political experiences in the way she approached her colleagues and and the way she approached judging with an eye toward where the public mood was. Right, so. She was very good at brokering compromises. I think the Casey decision stands out in, in that way. Uh, but she also was very adept at sort of understanding where the mood of the country was on hot button issues and making sure that the court didn't get too far out ahead of the country or lag too far behind. And mm. that often meant that she wasn't advancing a broad Ideological or theoretical agenda about what the Constitution should mean, but rather with making very incremental, narrow decisions that really hewed to the four corners of each case that was presented.
2: Coming up on the program, we'll talk more with Melissa Murray about the late Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. I'm Lydia Wheeler.
3: And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch the program weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
3: I'm Lydia Wheeler, and I'm Kimberly Robinson, in for June Grasso.
2: You may be surprised that I'm promoting civics teaching and learning using online media. I'm not an expert in it, but these are the new tools of civic engagement for the digital generation, the young people. And even a retired cowgirl like me knows that we need to use these tools to educate if we're going to inspire and interest today's young people to become active and knowledgeable civic leaders. You just heard Justice
3: Sonderday O'Connor introducing her online teaching tool iCivics. We've been talking to New York University Law Professor Melissa Murray about the life of Justice O'Connor who passed away last week. Melissa, Justice O'Connor's legacy was solidified long before she retired in 2006, but she continued to be a public servant for many years after her retirement, championing causes like judicial independence and civics education. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that she did after she left the court and, you know, how that sort of compares with what we see from, you know, justices who have recently retired?
4: Well, I mean, Icivics is perhaps the cornerstone of her post-retirement work, and she did retire in two thousand five. And she wanted to be engaged. Um, I I think at this point in time, I'm only speculating here, but you know, at this point, I think she probably realized that her vote in Bush versus Gore in two thousand, which propelled George W. Bush to the presidency and set the stage for. John Roberts and then Samuel Alito to be appointed to the court. And and indeed, Justice Alito took her seat. Uh, I I think she understood that that had really changed the tenor of the court, had really sort of pushed the court in a rightward direction. And and it was very clear, um, even before the addition of the Trump justices, that the addition of Justice Alito in her seat had really moved the court to the right. You know, she had been among the majority in a decision to uphold the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law in McConnell, and that was principally undermined by a big part of the decision in Citizens United in 2010. And so, you know, I think perhaps we might understand her work in civics education and focusing on young people. uh, this was an opportunity for her to sort of re-engage this question about what democracy is, what is required of a democracy, and what is the role of a judge in a democracy.
2: Now, you mentioned her retirement before, um, and it's it, at the time, the circumstances were a little tumultuous, particularly as it came to the timing of her retirement. So can you tell listeners a bit about that?
4: So back in 2005, um, you know, Justice O'Connor was dealing with this family situation. Her husband was suffering from Alzheimer's and his needs had sort of ballooned and and she really did need to be with him more frequently. But she was also at the height of her authority on the court. I mean, she really was the fulcrum around which the entire court pivoted. And, you know, if you wanted to form a majority, you needed Sandra J. O'Connor in most instances. But she did make, The decision to step back because of these family responsibilities when she stepped down um, john roberts was nominated by george w bush to fill her seat and then very quickly thereafter william rehnquist who was the chief justice at the time unexpectedly passed away from complications from thyroid cancer and o'connor and rehnquist were very good friends Um, they had known each other at stanford law school apparently according to her biographer Evan Smith, they, Evan Thomas, they dated at one point in time and that Rehnquist had proposed marriage and was rejected. Um, so they were very good friends, but it seemed to come as a surprise to a lot of people and no more so than her. And so when that vacancy presented itself, the president, George W. Bush, nominated John Roberts to fill the seat um, that Rehnquist had left unoccupied. And that left O'Connor's seat available Um There was a lot of tumult around this. Um, The first person nominated to fill that seat was Harriet Meyer, who was part of the White House counsel team and someone that President Bush knew very well from his time in Texas. Um, She was viewed with considerable skepticism from those in the then-nascent conservative legal movement. Um, She didn't really have a lot of bona fides with conservatives. She wasn't a member of the Federalist Society. Ultimately, she withdrew. Um, the process, and Samuel Alito, who was perhaps a more conventional pick, was identified and was nominated to fill her seat, and, you know, when asked about it, she made all of the very familiar gestures praising the nominee, but she did note that she wished it had been a woman.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I do do want to make sure that we talk a lot about uh, that swap for Justice O'Connor, for Justice Leto, and sort of all the things that have happened since then, um, and what that means for her legacy. But first, just want to uh, give listeners a little idea about, um, you know, I think most people know a lot about her trailblazing career, but what about her upbringing? Um, What was that like? Because that seems very different from a lot of the justices that we have on the bench today as well.
4: Well, by her her own admission, she was a cowgirl from the American Southwest. Um, She grew up principally on her parents' ranch out in Arizona and not a super populated place. Ranches are notoriously isolated. This was no exception. She grew up with her her brother and her mother and father and you know the ranch hands who were there uh there wasn't really an opportunity for formal schooling on the ranch so when it was time for her to go to school she went to el paso which was the nearest large city which you know at the time i think wasn't what we think of as el paso today um, but that was the nearest larger city where she was able to attend school and she attended school while living with an aunt in el paso and then from there she went on to Stanford University for college she graduated early and matriculated at Stanford law school where she had a very distinguished career um, more distinguished than her husband apparently and was a member of the law review and then found as she graduated that despite her impeccable credentials despite her amazing training as a young woman, she could not actually get a job as a lawyer.
2: Kimberly alluded to this before about, you know, how a lot has changed in some of the legal areas that we've talked about. Um, Can you tell us like how consequential it was that Justice O'Connor was replaced by Samuel Alito on the bench?
4: I think lots of ink will be spilled in the next few months about, you know, sort of what it meant to shift from a Justice O'Connor to a Justice Alito. Um, You know, first, Justice O'Connor very much was sort of the median justice, the center of the court, the swing justice. I don't think anyone would describe Justice Alito in that way. I mean, mm-hmm. he is very firmly on the court's um, right wing, right flank. Uh, he's never really been in the middle during his time on the court. And in fact, I, I think he's probably moved more solidly to the right as his tenure on the court has progressed. In 2022, We saw Justice Alito write the majority opinion in Jobs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, overruling on a five to four vote um, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And of course, Justice O'Connor was absolutely pivotal in upholding Roe and brokering that compromise in Casey. We also see a very different set of votes from that seat in the arena of affirmative action. I mean, Justice O'Connor. Was very skeptical of race conscious remedies. Um, She was in the majority in Croson, a 1989 case that determined that strict scrutiny was the appropriate standard of review for any kind of racial classification, even ones that purportedly benefited minorities like affirmative action. In the most recent Supreme Court term, we saw Justice Alito with that six to three conservative supermajority to dismantle affirmative action in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. But I think another place where you see the real shift from a Justice O'Connor to a Justice Alito is just generally in the collegiality of the group. Um, you know much has been made in the last couple of years about a sort of eroding on the Supreme Court. She just had a
2: really, really remarkable career um, and definitely very collegial. Um, I'd I'd heard that from from several sources. But um, we really appreciate you uh, joining us. That was uh, New York University law professor Melissa Murray um, chatting with us about Sandra Day O'Connor's remarkable career. She's also the co-host of a podcast on the Supreme Court called Strict Scrutiny. Um, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll talk about the $6 billion bill bankruptcy settlement involving Purdue Pharma that's being fought over at the United States Supreme Court. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lydia Wheeler.
3: And I'm Kimberly Robinson, in for June Grosso. Let's now get to the Supreme Court fight over a $6 billion bankruptcy settlement involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of the highly addictive opioid OxyContin. And
5: Could the be. views of the opioid victims and their families is, is uh, not, doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm I think saying you are. I think are... your position is saying it doesn't matter.
3: That was Justice Brett Kavanaugh expressing skepticism with the federal government's argument that the settlement should be scuttled. Bloomberg News reporter Jonathan Randles joins us to discuss. So, Jonathan, can you start by telling us what exactly this settlement does and why the Biden administration is fighting it?
5: Sure. Uh, So the settlement would resolve tons of litigation uh, against Purdue Pharma and members of the Sackler family that own Purdue Pharma related to uh, Purdue's aggressive marketing of OxyContin. And uh, the reason the settlement is controversial is because it forces uh, opioid victims who would be otherwise against the plan uh, into the deal and forces them to drop uh, their claims and their ability to present their case uh, against the Sacklers to a jury, regardless of they want the deal or not. So that's why it's being challenged by the Biden administration.
2: Is there anybody that supports the settlement? And if so, Why?
5: Yeah, it's widely supported by different creditor groups. So, like, state attorneys general, like, uniformly support the deal. Um, different counties and cities, municipalities that are all trying to get money uh, from Purdue and the Sacklers to pay for opioid abatement programs uh support the deal. And um, groups and personal injury lawyers that represent tens of thousands of uh, opioid victims or claimants, people uh, who either directly have been impacted by opioid addiction or family members who say have lost people to uh, overdose, also support the plan. The reason why the people who are proponents of the deal want the Supreme Court to uphold it is because it provides up to $6 billion in funding Mm Um, and, you know, thousands of dollars for individual claimants that, um, supporters say they wouldn't otherwise have available to them. So if, uh, the Justice Department's, uh, bankruptcy unit, it's called the U.S. Trustee Program, if they succeed in scuttling the deal, um, supporters of the plan say, you know, billions of dollars in aid that they would otherwise receive would just evaporate and, Uh, they'd lose this money that is desperately needed to address uh, the addiction crisis.
3: Hmm. So, I mean, if this is it really um, for people who are seeking, uh, you know, some sort of relief, really the issue for them is this one particular provision of the settlement. Wondering if you can tell us what that provision is all about?
5: Yeah, so the the jargony <laughs> term for it is, it's called a non-consensual third-party release. Purdue Pharma filed bankruptcy in 2019, and uh, as a part of the bankruptcy, they reached this settlement uh, with the Sackler family. The Sacklers are not in bankruptcy, but the settlement essentially extends the benefits of produced bankruptcy to members of the Sackler family. And, um, the non-consensual third-party release is the mechanism that binds, um, individuals who uh, oppose the deal, uh, to it. It's, it's something that was first used, uh, in the late 80s and then authorized by Congress in the early 90s to deal with, uh asbestos litigation and it's been expanded uh over the last three decades to address all types of product liability uh lawsuits and uh waves of litigation um, over sexual abuse. So it's been used to resolve uh sex abuse litigation brought against different different Catholic archdiocese, um USA gymnastics, um Harvey Weinstein's um former film studio uh directors and officers of that film studio uh were the beneficiaries of this type of arrangement as well and the thought is lawsuits can be complicated when there's you know tons of litigation brought by hundreds or in this case hundreds of thousands of individual claimants um these types of deals while you know it's not great to force um holdouts into a deal uh, it's The argument goes necessary to distribute uh, a bankrupt company's limited funds as fairly as possible.
2: So does this actually protect the Sackler family from future litigation then?
5: Yes. Any, any claim related to Purdue's marketing or sale of uh, opioids... Would be uh, resolved or extinguished, however you want to describe it. Uh, any any future lawsuit that would be brought um, would you, you can get into like the specific like legal mechanics of how this works, but it would essentially be blocking any future lawsuits against the Baglers okay. related to um, the opioid business.
3: What about lawsuits by the federal government? Are those would those be blocked if this deal it gets the green light from the Supreme Court?
5: It would resolve. Uh, civil lawsuits. So I think that the, the Department of Justice, God, it was probably 2020, Department of Justice, uh, settled their civil claims against the uh, members of the Sackler family for, uh, I don't have the number right off the top, but I think it's like $225 million the Sackler family agreed to pay to resolve the federal government's civil liability. Th- so this would resolve you know, any kind of lawsuit seeking money against the family Mm -hmm. brought by the federal government or uh, individual state authorities, uh, local counties, or personal injury victims. It does not uh, prevent any federal authority or state authority from bringing any potential criminal charges against uh, anybody related to Purdue. Um, But, you know, The Sacklers have always maintained and continue to maintain that uh, these are merely allegations. They've, um, you know, deny liability and all wrongdoing, and of course, they've never been criminally charged.
2: Now, the justices today seemed really divided. You know, there were several justices that were skeptical of the Sacklers arguments um, and others that were skeptical of the government's attempt to scuttle this deal. So can you talk about kind of where the justices were shaking out? Like, were they following kind of on their ideological lines here? Or, you know, was there was the divide kind of across uh, across the aisle?
5: Uh, uh, The latter. It's kind of interesting you know bankruptcy doesn't always get as much attention um <laughs> in the supreme court as other um more and rightfully so more high profile or or you know controversial or contested kind of legal issues of the day um so it's always kind of interesting when something from um you know bankruptcy court finds its way all the way up to the supreme court and as is often the case as it was today too um Yeah, uh, this issue kind of cut through the normal conservative Mm -hmm. liberal ideological lines. So you had um, Neil Gorsuch was pointing to the fact that, you know, by stripping holdouts potentially of the right to a a jury trial, that raised constitutional problems potentially to the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And you had uh, liberal justices, you know, raising... Different arguments against it, like the fact that um, Purdue transferred, oh, it was like ten billion dollars in in um, funds from the company between 2008 and before they filed in 2019. Uh, the point being that uh, the reason why Purdue says it needs this settlement. Um, is arguably because the Sacklers took money out of the business before bankruptcy. Um, I think that was Justice Jackson who raised that point. So a different point, but similar skepticism and uh, it's cutting you know both ways, liberal and conservative. If there's one thing you take away from my argument today, it is
0: this, and let me be crystal clear. Without the release, the plan will unravel Chapter 7 liquidation will follow, and there will be no viable path to any victim recovery. That was
3: Attorney Prateek Shah urging the justices to greenlight the $6 billion settlement involving Purdue Pharma. Jonathan, wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the future implications of the case if the court were to side against Purdue Pharma. Is Shah right that there likely won't be any relief for the victims and their families?
5: That's really hard to say. Obviously, what Shaw was arguing and and a lot of proponents of the deal uh, who represent the interest of opioid victims have been adamant for years now as this has been tied up in appeals that this is the best and only deal available to opioid victims. And without it, you know, there's a whole parade of horribles that will happen, including um, a loss of up to six billion dollars that could, you know, help address or rectify at least some of the harm caused by Purdue. You know, they've accused of obviously fueling uh, the opioid epidemic. What will happen? I, I don't really know, but Purdue and uh, proponents, including victims who uh, have no love loss with the Sacklers, say um, there will be nothing uh, left for victims if this is uh, unwound by the Supreme
2: Court. What happens though if the court sides with Purdue Pharma? You know, what is the government saying will happen here?
5: Yeah, that's a good question. they are much more like a straightforward argument being as good as this settlement might be for everyone involved. It's not permitted under the bankruptcy code. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of that simple. They also say that if the deal is unwound, well, Purdue and the Sacklers, they're just going to have to make a different deal. You know, they're not preventing anybody that wants to be a part of this deal from uh, consenting to it. The problem is forcing people that don't consent to it uh, to take it. So what the Justice Department is saying is that, like, look, if this goes back to the bankruptcy court, they'll just have to work out another deal. And potentially that would mean maybe the Sacklers would have to put up even more money uh, than they already have to buy peace. And it doesn't prevent anybody that wants to be a part of this deal from being a part of the deal. It just prevents people who don't want to be a part of it from being forced to take it. Hmm.
3: So reading the teen leaves on a Supreme Court argument is always a very dangerous game. Mm -hmm. Uh, That seems particularly so in this case. Did you get a sense of where this is actually going to end up at the end of the day?
5: No. <laughs> I wish that I did. But, you know, it's. I mean, I think the most interesting thing is getting, um, you know, justices that wouldn't otherwise agree kind of raising similar arguments or kind of being um, in agreement either against the deal or at, at the same, you know, Uh, raising questions about the challenge to the deal, I kind of found interesting.
2: What about the broader impact here? Is there any concern that this deal could upend bankruptcies in general going forward?
5: For sure. I think this was what the Purdue lawyer said, that what is at risk here is potentially uh, the Justice Department taking like a wrecking ball to the bankruptcy code. Mm -hmm. These types of settlements are are pretty common when companies that are like overwhelmed by lawsuits wind up in bankruptcy. And uh, if the Supreme Court says you can't make this type of deal, um, you know, maybe it means that companies that would file bankruptcy to try and you know some come to some sort of like grand settlement of litigation maybe they don't file bankruptcy in the future so yeah it it if the supreme court um agrees with the justice department um it would have pretty broad implications um for bankruptcy in general and its use as a forum to resolve uh this type of mass litigation uh, in the future
2: Wow. So uh, lots to watch for uh, in that case. Um, That's Bloomberg News reporter Jonathan Randalls. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. By the way, the Sackler family denies all liability and hasn't been criminally charged. And that does it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Lydia Wheeler.
3: And I'm Kimberly Robinson.
2: This is Bloomberg.